Uh, who, who likes to whistle here? I thought you would, Ranza. So do you remember this song? And then maybe Ranza and others will whistle it. Here's a little song I wrote. I, use, I hope you sing it note by note. Don't worry. Be happy. And the whistle part goes. Some of you have never heard that. And you're going, this is nuts. Right? <laughs> Don't worry. Be happy. We're going to follow up what Andrew talked about last Sunday um, in a very strange way. Because if you look at the passage, um, it's sort of a sandwich. And the first part of the sandwich says this. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Immediately following that verse, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Isn't that an interesting juxtaposition? Um, A challenge about not serving the wrong master, and then an encouragement not to worry. So we're going to talk about not worrying. And I want to begin by showing you a clip. Um, Our friend Luis was interviewed by... Andrew this week. Uh, Luis, by the way, is the guy with the best haircut in the room. I don't know if you know that. Just right. So, Have a look, because we do worry, don't we? And we worry about money. We worry about money these days. We worry about the cost of groceries. We worry about whether we ought to stay in Milton or if it's going to be uh, too expensive to live here. We do worry uh, against what the Lord Jesus says. So just listen. This is a short clip of a longer one that you ought to go see It will be on our website. Always. It's been because the bidding wars, right, all this stuff. um, I've been, for the grace of God, never had um, all the the buying and selling, never had a bidding Hmm. with, with me because I don't, I'm, I don't agree with that, hmm. right? Hmm. So how can I, it's, it's hard for me, for my heart to, how can I sell this? Right. And because I, I don't want to serve Mammon, right? I, I want to serve the Lord. So how, how to deal with, with this? Um, it's been transparent with the client hmm. uh, and, and, and fear the Lord. Um, and I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't say this just like for the real estate. I think everything you do. Right everything you do you know um even you know speaking the word of god i mean you cannot manipulate you know scriptures in order for you to get you know uh, a congregation a number of congregation that's mm-hmm. not the point mm-hmm. right and in everything else doctors uh yeah we we need to be more um like a micah says um um this is what god this is what god requires from us right is Act justly, love mercy, and um, and walk humbly hmm. with God. Hmm. That's the only thing that he he wants us to do, right? So why can't we? When we see financial, you know, struggles, why can't we? Oh, but I I may lose my job. Well, are you going to compromise because of? You know that, that that's a very delicate right. situation. Very delicate. Yes, uh, uh, this week I was thinking about um, 
I, I don't want to move because it's, it's been ridiculous in terms of, you know, a lifestyle. Um, you know, everything is expensive. So sometimes we go like, oh my gosh, it is Milton, you know, the place for us to stay, right? Because it, it is hard. It's becoming harder and harder and yeah. harder for you to buy food, for you to, to live in, in, in Milton and any, any uh, uh, big city. But I told, I, I was like, but I don't want to move mm. because I have this struggle. Right. But at the same time, Jesus says, when, when you face persecution, go to the mountains. When that comes, you, you go, you know, uh, uh, sorry for the, for the, uh, the, 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 the mothers there, there are, you know, nursing or mm-hmm. right. But you, you go and, and, and. I don't know. I just that's why, um, yeah. The I think faith is is important because, for me, and my house, we were serve the Lord. So if the Lord puts in, we are pursuing Anna and I. We are pursuing peace. Yeah, peace. Wow, peace. Th- this if you if you ask me. Okay, so where is God leading you to? Is peace in our heart? Like if if it is to stay here. We're gonna stay here because we are in peace. Both of us, we, we are in agreement. Right. Right. I love that peace. That is um, the term that would um, properly define a non-anxious presence. That we would long to be able to say we're at peace. That we have shalom. That we're not anxious. And we are living, as we've been saying now for the last few months, we are living in a hyper-anxious time. People are more anxious than they've ever been before. Young people are more anxious. Old people are more anxious. And oftentimes, the anxiety does kind of um, roll around the matter of money. Um, We're anxious about our savings, we're anxious about our investments, we're anxious about our lack of savings, we're anxious about how things are going up in cost, and we're not sure how we can manage um, the lives and uh, the situations in which we find ourselves. So in, in this teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, it's, it's just fascinating to me that Jesus, having been kind of hardcore on you have to choose, you either serve God or you serve money. Um, and he, he takes us to the, to the floor on that. And then he immediately says, therefore, don't worry. So what is the, the comparison that Jesus is making? Um, why is the one um, very obviously the reason for the second? Uh, when I was growing up, my dad was also a pastor. And he would always say something that made me cringe, like I have for many years, right? Um, my, my dad would say, when you come to a therefore, and we go, I know you have to ask what it's there for. That is the corniest thing, dad, until I got to be a pastor. And I came to a passage like this, and I thought to myself, you know what? He wasn't daft. Therefore is therefore a reason, so what is it there for? What is the connection between Jesus um, being hardcore on who it is that we serve as master and how we then are people who cannot worry? 
So let me remind you of where we are and where we've come from. Um, we, we've tried to basically establish a worldview that helps us all have our bearings as we live in this world. We are people in this world, we love this world, we are against this world and for this world all at the same time. But we understand that there's construct um, in which our ideas and our behaviors are shaped. So in the teaching of, of the Christian faith, um, we know about the devil, um, we know about the flesh, and we know about the world. The devil, as we've said to you hopefully very clearly, is a real being. He is the dark lord of Tolkien kind of, of literature. There really is someone. He's not just a force. He's not just you know uh, ideas. There's a real person, and he is, according to Jesus, the father of lies. So everything that we hear from the devil, we actually expect to be lies. Maybe half-truths, maybe nearly truths, but everything that he says, everything that he proposes is in fact a lie. And so we do well to have a look at the, the world and our environment and say to whatever degree the devil is and is influencing this world, it's probably a matter of lies. It's him poking questions and making suggestions and and suspicions of what God said. So like at the very beginning, he said to Eve, did God really say that? And it made her second guess what God had said. And she began to make up her narrative about what God had said. And that's the way Satan has operated. Jesus says he's the father of lies. And so we expect that he lies. And therefore, somewhere around us um, is a set of truths, statements, ideas, proposals that in all likelihood have the character of being lies. The second area in which we realize we function is the flesh. And so if the devil is the author of deceptive ideas, the flesh is the way that we respond to his wrong ideas and disorder our desires. So we are all created beings, all with desires. Desire is not a bad thing, but it's a question of what we desire. And when the devil is sowing his lies, then we understand our worldview is that our flesh responds to his ideas. So his ideas uh, come to us on commercials, they come to us on billboards, they come to us in all of our um, accesses to the messaging around us, and our flesh says, yeah, I think that's right. I think if I had that, we heard it on the Alpha video, if I had a girlfriend, I'd be happier. If I had this, I'd be happier. If I had a little more, I'd be happier. You're right, but that's a lie. Um, we would not be happier because we have things, and particularly as we think today about monetary situations, we would not be happier, but we've believed that we would. And so our flesh is that part of us that resonates with the lies of the devil, and our flesh says, yeah, I wish I could have more. I wish I could have that. And then the third area in which we function is a world in which those um, those ideas uh, have been sown, those desires have been disordered, 
and the society around us uh, basically cheers us and it along and says, that's right, that's right, that's the right idea. You need to change what you do so that you can have those things that resonate with that idea, and this whole world is going to support you. They're going to cheer you on as you get more, as you be more, as you accumulate more. And as Christians, um, we say we're followers of Jesus, and we need to go all the way to the beginning of this and ask questions about what truth really is. And then when we understand something about what truth really is, then we can ask, well, in what way do my desires line up with what is true? And then when I realize how my desires can be lining up with what is true, then I can say, why don't I be an agent? Why don't I be a catalyst of saying, are you sure when somebody is so sure about something that is probably a lie? Um, and we can say, and here are the things that I think in my heart I really want. Don't you really want those things? And it's some of the same language. We do want to be happy. The Bible is full of encouragements to be happy, to be blessed. But it is basing um, those formulae on the truth of the Bible itself. And then um, these desires resonate with that. And we in the church are supposed to be the place in which we together um, realize the desires that we have in a godly way. And then we promote those things with one another and we become the kind of a society that should be able to step out in the world and say, it's, we are different. We're not different because we're better, we're not different because we're smarter, but we're different because we have, we have really understood that the Dark Lord is ruling this place and that that's not just science fiction or fantasy fiction. So with that in mind, we come to this passage and hear Jesus saying, now you must have made your choice. Are you going to serve God or money? Are you going to serve God or mammon? It's either one or the other. And that's a truism. You can't have two masters. You're going to prefer one over the other. So in life, you will either allow God to be your master, or you will let money be your master. Um, Jesus sees no other kind of options that are on the table. So here's what he says. For this reason, and it is simply the word therefore, it is a single word that is literally translated therefore. This translation, the New American Standard, says for this reason, and that's a legitimate way to translate what's written there. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The logic of the passage seems to be that if we have decided that God would be our master and are living that way, not paying attention to money, paying uh, appropriate attention just to live our lives and to live in this world, but if we have known God as our master, Jesus implies and directly proposes that we should be able to be people who don't worry. 
I suppose that what Jesus is saying is this. Because you have come to understand that the one who is your master is good, the one who is your master cares about you. So Jesus goes through a little litany of all the things that God demonstrates his care over. He, he talks about the lilies of the field and says that even Solomon, in all of the colorful glory, wasn't clothed like the lilies. Um, the birds, that God cares about every one of them. The grass that actually just grows up and then withers and dies, but look how God cares for it in that growing up. And the wisdom of that passage would uh, kind of join up with much of the other wisdom sections of the Bible and would allow us to, to meditate into that and say, well, what does that mean? I mean, Jesus is saying that God cares about things that actually do wither and they actually do perish and they do have the end of their cycle. But in the middle of it, Jesus is saying um, all of these these. Um, created aspects of this world in which we live, they don't work for what they get. God does it, and when they have lived out the beauty of their flourishing, then their time is over and they, and they pass along. So, uh, so we do know um, that human life is not um, eternal. Um, we do get sick. We do die. But in the middle of it all, Jesus said, if, if you have gotten square on this, that God is your master, you can live your life with the confidence that God will care for you, so don't worry. In fact, he says, if you worry, what good is it going to do? One of our sons, when he was growing up, said this all the time. Um, so Annabeth would say to him, has anything that you've worried about ever actually happened? And his answer was always, not yet. <laughs> but that's how we live, isn't it? We, we live with this undercurrent of worry that lets us find ourselves in bed at night with just kind of a troubling spirit. Maybe it's focused on finances. Maybe it's focused on other aspects of life. But we find ourselves just troubled, moderately or greatly troubled. And Jesus says, but if you get the first part right, you can enjoy the second part. If you will determine that God is the one who is right, is the one who does tell truth, if you have settled that, then you can live in the confidence that he is going to look after you. So why worry about tomorrow? And again, in a sense of realism, he says, tomorrow's going to have enough problems of its own. He, he's not naive. He's not saying your life will not have any troubles, but he's saying that when you're having troubles, just stay in the moment and understand that God does care about you. And tomorrow, believe me, there'll be something else to worry about, so don't waste your energy doing that just now. Let me go a little bit farther with what we need to know. Um, as we live as people who own God as our master, we've talked about the, the idea that we have mental maps. So just as we have maps that we... Uh, kind of default to about how to get from A to B. Uh, in our heads, we have maps that basically believe um, the regions of those maps are the important regions through which we will travel for a meaningful life. So you might have an a wrong map, absolutely, about where you should are going from A to B. It might be a bad map. 
So in life, you may have a bad map that believes that if you will visit these regions or travel through these regions, you will get what you would call happiness or blessedness. And if we are to go back to the question of God and whether he is the one who knows the right answers and uh, the true truth, then we, we need to be willing to be disruptors. Disruption seems to be a word we're using everywhere these days, but I think it's an appropriate one. And what we need to do, um, thinking about the devil, the flesh, and the world, we need to be willing to disrupt the world's mental map if we're going to be the kind of people who um, demonstrate that God is our master. So if we think about the three areas in which uh, each one of us needs to be wise um, as to our vulnerability, um, Richard Foster has said that the three things that trip up everybody, one or more of the three, are money, sex, and power. So in the Bible, we, we find um, that there's the description of the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. So if we're going to trip up, it may likely be in one of those areas. So we're going to talk about money today and say, if we are going to prove that we are letting God be sovereign in our wealth, um, then what will that work out to? How do we need to change the map that we have in our heads about how we view money? Let me, let me jump to the, the power one, just to give you an example. Um, Jesus was a master at disrupting the devil's ways and the world's ways. So when it comes to power, um, if you are pursuing power, if that is one of, of the, the go-get-it kinds of issues in your life, you may envision some situation in which you have absolute control, absolute sovereignty, um, both the permission and the ability to get done what you want to get done. So Jesus disrupted that, and he disrupted the map that Satan has drawn for us. The map that Satan has drawn for us is that the way to get what you want is by power. And in so many of our human areas, we have fallen prey to the trap of pursuing power. Um, what did Jesus do? There's that one day, and Jesus' disciples were chatting, so to speak, along the way. And Jesus heard everything that they were saying. So when they got to the house they were going to stay at, he said, hey, what were you guys talking about? And they were kind of like, oh, shoot, he heard us. Um, oh, it's just, just stuff. And Jesus said, no, what were you talking about? We were talking about who's the greatest among us. Jesus said, you've got to be kidding me. That's what was going on back there. And then he said, that's not the way it is with us. We do not long to lord it over people. In fact, if we want to be great, we'll become less. If, if we want to be first, we better line up to be last. Because power um, will poison your journey if it's one of those zones that is the territory you think you need to get through. So Jesus disrupted that. Um, he disrupted it when, by the most violent thing that has ever been done, the most powerfully violent thing, which was his own crucifixion, he turned death on its side. He turned death against itself. He turned the power of death against death. And in all of the ways in which he led his disciples, 
He led them by saying, no, not that way, not that way, not that way. Instead, a different way. We won't go into sex and how he disrupted that. It's a mature audience here, so we'll save that for Andrew for another Sunday, I think. The area though, that we're concerned about is, is money. And what we need to do is to disrupt the lies. And the first lie that we need to disrupt is the lie of mammon. The lie that says money will make us happy. The lie that says money is the most important resource that's available to us. Money is the thing that should be the final arbiter of what decisions we make. Jesus has said, um, unless you've been naive, you will understand that money will become a huge monster in your life and will demand to be your master. Um, and th there aren't many other things that Jesus talks about like that, but he says you're going to have to choose. It'll either be money or God. It'll be simply that decision that will shape kind of the, the areas in, of your life in which you will travel. So we, we need to be willing to disrupt the lies of Satan, um, which is to say that's not true. It's not true that if I can have more money, I would be happier. It's not true to say that money should be used um, to get the things that, that I have sort of chalked up as the things that are important in my life and for the people around me. And if we could only have more money, we would do much, much better than that. But there's another kind of lie that I think we succumb to that we need to understand and it's self's lie. It's, it's the way that we lie to ourselves. So we, we may understand that the world is, is a liar about how important money is, but we may not discern that we lie to ourselves about how we understand money. Um, the Bible tells us that the, the human heart is desperately wicked, that it's deceitful. And even as followers of Jesus, we find that the heart will oftentimes just somehow or other revert back to these lies and will begin to believe them. The, the lie that I think um, we are succumbing to in the church in this particular region of the world and this particular period of time is the lie that the rich young ruler succumbed to. So bear with me about what that was. This young guy comes to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, a great teacher, turns it back and says, well, what do you think? What does your law tell you? And this young man says, well, I should love the Lord my God with my heart and mind, soul, and strength, and my neighbor is myself. And Jesus said, that's exactly right. Um, and then he said, but one thing you're lacking. He said, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the text tells us that the, the young man went away sorrowful because he had a lot. The thing that I think is tripping us up is that syndrome that believes it is doing religion and it's not. The implication of that story is that that young man did not inherit eternal life, even though he knew the law, even though he, he knew his ethics and morality and could kind of recite them. He was a churchgoer, 
in, in our parlance. He, he was a religious person. And Jesus said, but go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Now, was that required for this young man to have eternal life? No, we would say it wasn't. But what was required was that the matter of lordship be ironed out in his life. And since he wouldn't do it, he basically was saying, I am not willing for Jesus to be Lord in my life. I'm not willing for God to be Lord in my life. What has tripped us up is that we have succumbed to the idea um, that by our identification, our politics, um, our racial origin, our various other things, that we can claim to be Christians. We can claim to be followers of Jesus. And it is patently apparent that in certain parts of the U.S., for example, there's a whole demographic that believes that their use of power and their use of exclusion and their use of manipulation is a gospel thing, that it's a good thing. It is making them identify themselves as Christians. So the word evangelical now is a word that has brought disdain because what is called evangelicalism is like the rich young ruler who came and said, what do I have to have to get eternal life? And Jesus said, go and sell everything. Give to the No, no, no. That's not my politics, you see. I'm more to the right than that. Um, and Jesus says, and give to the poor. Are you kidding me? Um, they deserve what they have. And we have clothed um, what ostensibly is Christian faith in something that is not Christian at all, with a president who, um, by his own confession, was everything less than a Christian than he ought to be. And the politics of a movement that says we can now control the ethics and the morality of a society um, by gaining influence over that society. And Jesus would step into that and say, who told you that's the way the kingdom of God shows up? Who told you that's the way the acts of the kingdom are lived out. So the lie that I think we very likely can be telling ourselves is that we're just fine. Um, and we're just fine along with our money and the buildings our money has built and the institutions our money has built and the movements our money has built to keep us uh, in the sweet spot of the religious privilege that um, we have unfortunately been able to enjoy for decades and decades. And Jesus might say, who told you that is Christianity? Who told you that's evangelicalism? You're like the rich young ruler. So wealth has indeed um, infected the church. It has infected the church um, so that the church has um, basically cloistered itself against um, those things that Luis reminded us from Micah. The church has protected itself against having to do those things along with its money. And Jesus must be saying, who told you that your wealth was to be spent on yourself and your political ends and your um, particular beliefs 
in terms of the behavior of people in a society. I think that lie may be the lie that we tell ourselves. How do we get to be the kind of people that would please God and would subscribe to the success of that little sandwich of promises in Matthew? Um, How can we be sure that we actually are people who have given ownership of God to our wealth, our finances? How, How can we be sure? Is it because, you know, you give a lot of money at church and and there you go? Um, Is it because you've been really blessed and you're able to give even more money? Um, Or might God be saying, well, wait a minute, that's really not what I'm looking for. I remember years ago uh, coming across a wonderful book called Disciple um, by a guy called Juan Ortiz. And he, he sort of reworks a parable and I think gives us a wise um, journey through this whole matter of being wealthy but also being Christian. So we can be wealthy um, but God not really have mastery in our lives. So how do we make sure that we are, um, we don't need to apologize for the wealth of our, our nation necessarily. We don't need to apologize for our success or um, our desires for good things for ourselves and our families. But here's the story that uh, Juan Ortiz tells. He says, there was a pearl of great price. A man sees this pearl and says to the merchant, I want this pearl. How much is it? The seller says, oh, it's very expensive. How much? A lot. Well, do you think I could buy it? The man asks. Oh, yes, said the merchant. Everyone can buy it. But I thought you said it was very expensive. I did. Well, how much? Everything you have, says the seller. All right, I'll buy it. Okay. What do you have? Well, I have $10,000 in the bank. Good. $10,000. What else? That's all I have. Nothing more? Well, I have a few dollars more in my pocket. How how much? Let's see. Uh, $100. That's mine too, says the seller. What else do you have? That's all. Nothing else. Where do you live? The seller asks. In my house. Yes, yes, I own a house. The seller writes it down. House. It's mine. Where do you expect me to sleep? In my camper? Oh, you have a camper, do you? That too. What else? Am I supposed to sleep in my car? Oh, you have a car. Yes, I own two of them. They're mine too. Look, you've taken my money, my house, my camper, my cars. Where is my family going to live? So you have a family. Yes, I have a wife and three kids. They're mine now. Suddenly the seller exclaims, oh, I almost forgot, you yourself too. Everything becomes mine, wife, children, house, money, cars, and you too. And here's the important part. He said, now listen, I will allow you to use all these things for the time being, but don't forget that they're all mine, just as you are. And whenever I need any of them, you must give them up because I am now the owner. I think that's the trick. 
It doesn't matter how much I have or you have. It matters that if God wants it, I give it up. Maybe he never asks for any of it. But I need to be ready at the drop of a hat to give anything that I would call mine to the kingdom and for the kingdom. And maybe a good exercise for us would be to start with small things and say, what are the things that are mine? And then just say, now, how tightly am I holding that thing? Maybe it's a boat. Um, How tightly do I hold on to that boat? And there's a missionary family, maybe, that is home on home assignment. And they would love to have, you know, the opportunity in, in the Muskokas to do some boating. And someone suggests to you that it would be lovely if you gave your boat to them for the time that they're here. It means that you wouldn't have it for the summer season. What would you do? Because that's exactly what this is about. Would you say, well, um, I don't like other people driving my boat, so if you don't mind, I'll, I'll drive you around the lake anytime. Um, but, and, and it's also it's kind of a tricky boat to maneuver, so you, you wouldn't want to try to do that by yourself. And I really don't want it damaged. Oh, so the boat still belongs to you. Even if God seems to be the one who is saying, here's an incredible thing. This family would be blessed by this boat. Will you let them have it? Suppose you have a car. Perhaps you have two. Maybe you need to look in the garage and say, if God asked for one of those cars, would I give it to him? And we fail on the test even in the short-term loan department. We, we actually find ourselves resentful of the idea that God would ever want us to give something that's maybe not even critical in our lives, but it's ours. And we become those, those greedy people that hold tight to everything that we have. And it's nothing to do with how much you have. In fact, the most generous people I know are the wealthiest people I know. And the most reluctant people I know are the, the ones who are poorest. It's, it's not that. Um, it's the matter of lordship and stewardship. And I think the key to Matthew 5 is Jesus saying, is God master of everything you have? Is he the master of your wealth or not? Are you going to let mammon trump the lordship of Christ? And how and when are you going to let that happen? Or will you allow the sovereignty of God to reign? And even if it doesn't require you give anything, you know in your heart that you're ready. You're not holding your possessions tightly. You're holding them loosely and saying, God, if you want them, you can have them anytime. Remember, the seller of the pearl says, listen, you can use these things for a while, but if I need them, you have to give them up. It, it doesn't take deep thinking to see whether or not we pass this test, does it? On many, many fronts, we will all confess that we don't pass that test. But imagine the freedom if the stuff you worry about because it may get damaged or stolen, 
if that stuff isn't really even yours, if it belongs to God, and if he lets it get stolen, that's his problem, not yours. If he lets it get, get damaged, that's his problem. Because the freedom that comes to you is the freedom that says he is trustworthy not only with the universe, but he's trustworthy with everything that I have, with my bank account, with my cash, with my possessions. And I don't like anymore the idea um, that I just feel as though I'm clamoring in my spirit over a panic that something might take away the things that I think are mine and I think they deserve to be mine. Here's an exercise. Find something and give it away this week. Maybe it's as pathetic a thing as like a hockey card. No, that's not pathetic. But as, as tiny a thing, and maybe it's not even something that you really, really do treasure. Start there. Just say, hey, do you want this? You can have it. You know, somebody comes by at Starbucks and says, what's that drink? That looks lovely. What is it? And you say, you want it? It's kind of disgusting, but it is a, a thought experiment, right? W what is the thing that somebody, even as you think about it, you realize, I bet that guy would like that. And give it to him and say, no strings attached, no thank yous necessary. Remember the Seinfeld episode, the thank, thank you episode, the thank you call? See, that was a strings attached and God calls us to be no strings attached kind of people because when somebody says, wow, that's pretty nice that you give me, that's a really cool thing, that's, it's not mine. So, you know, don't applaud. It's not mine. It belongs to God, and I think you need to, you need to have it. So here. 